Hello and welcome to It's All Relative. I'm your host, historian and writer, Dr. Eliza Philby, taking a light-hearted look at the generation gap. Each episode, I shall be interviewing two guests from different generations of the same famous family to discuss their contrasting lives, experiences and values. For this second episode, I'd like to introduce a mother and daughter, one of whom you will know very well, but whose collective family story in the cosy English Cotswolds reflects a much more profound and interconnected tale. One which takes in the South African apartheid, the Cambodian genocide, and the contrasting feminisms of late 20th century Britain. Born in 1940 in Cape Town, South Africa, Dame Prue Leith is one of our leading culinary entrepreneurs and TV personalities. Her judging role on the Great British Bake Off is, if you'll excuse the pun, the icing on the cake of a career that has spanned six decades. Prue is mother to two children, Daniel Kruger, now a Conservative MP, and adopted daughter, Lida Kruger, our second guest. Lida is a filmmaker whose first documentary, Belonging, was shortlisted for the prestigious Grierson Award in 2003. Last year, Lida and Prue featured in a Channel 4 documentary, Journeying to Cambodia, Lida's homeland, to seek out the story of her heritage. Lida was born during the Cambodian Civil War and was flown out of the country on one of the last flights by an American pilot. The documentary, Prue Leith, Journey with My Daughter, is still available on all four, and I hope this interview inspires you all to watch it. Lida, could we start with you? If you could just describe your adoption journey and how you went in search of your Cambodian heritage, because it's such a kind of unique and fascinating story. Eliza, thank you for having me and my mum. You know, I've, I've been searching for 20 years um, about uh, for my biological family, and I don't think I'll ever know. Um, but from the very beginning, as you can imagine, um, I look very different from my family. So it was always in the forefront of my mind, but it was more a kind of, I wonder what my life would have been like in Cambodia. You know, I always wanted to search. And when I finally um, did uh, and made the documentary Belonging, you know, that, that I didn't find anything. Uh, and in some ways, I found out that all my, uh, that everything I thought I knew wasn't correct. So it then became a, a sort of a journey of um, cultural discovery, I suppose. Prue, could you describe how you came to adopt Lida and, and actually that moment when you finally met her? Now I know so much more about adoption and I've thought more intellectually about it. But at the time, I just wanted a baby. That was the long and the short of it. And it was entirely selfish. Um, we already had a little boy. Um, he was a year when Lida arrived. And... My husband had never wanted to um, have children because he had brought up three of his first wife's children. We did a deal, but it was selfish. It wasn't, I wasn't trying to do something um, humanitarian. I wasn't trying to save Lida from, um, from genocide because, in fact, she had already been saved. She was already out of the country when we um, heard about her. So I just wanted her. And when I met her, which was in Paris... You know, it took about two minutes flat to know that I wanted to have her. But I was on my own. I'd taken Daniel with me, who was a baby, um, and I rang up my husband that evening. And my husband, 
my husband just said, look, it's perfectly, it's perfectly obvious that you are in love with this child and I'm going to fly out tonight and we'll see her together. So he did. Amazing. Lida, you said your childhood was a very happy one, surrounded by love, but there came a point in your life when you really wanted to discover your Cambodian side. Well, I mean, my mum did try um, to uh, find Cambodian people in England, and but because of the history and the genocide that was... Well, we didn't know it was genocide at the time, but because of what was going on politically in Cambodia, there was no information. And, uh, you know, I think I think my mum had this sort of heritage box that she shoved my way at some point and said, right, this is <laughs> this is Cam- your Cambodian history. Um, it was a it was a, a DVD of one of John Pilger's films about Cambodia and an article about um, sacred dance. And I just wasn't interested in any of it. Um, and that was when I was really young. But then, you know, I always knew I was different. So um, the real turnaround was I I went to Cambodia to try and find my birth parents or who they were, certainly. And um, I discovered really a culture and a country because I didn't find the answers I was looking for. But suddenly this gateway had opened to, uh, to a whole different world that was totally, totally fascinating and, and, and strange because basically I was English. I had grown up English and I felt like a complete imposter to begin with. Um, and that, that was a sort of journey in itself because um, I kept thinking, well, they, you know, I, I, they see me as Cambodian, but I'm not Cambodian. I look English. You know, I'd ask all these Cambodians about their story and I realised that because I was an outsider but looked like them and we shared this history, they could tell me. And I think, you know, after a while... I felt accepted by them and there was actually a moment and it's it was caught on film in the first documentary but this woman just clung to me thinking I was I I understood the word daughter and mother in Khmer and she kept saying this and she was sobbing and we ended up going from you know sitting sort of feet feet apart to clinging on to each other and sobbing together and I think that was the real moment that I just felt you know this is where I belong I suppose. I think it's hard to appreciate, certainly in this era of information overload, what it must have been like for the young leader growing up without any means of finding out her own story or that of her countries. Back then, the veil of the Iron Curtain enveloped Europe and the Cold War consumed the world. The Khmer Rouge, a brutal communist regime, ruled from 1975 to 1979, massacring nearly a quarter of Cambodia's population. The extent of the killing fields were first exposed by investigative journalist John Pilger in his 1979 documentary, The Silent Death of Cambodia. Much like Michael Burke's reporting of famine in Ethiopia, Pilger's film was seen by millions and awoken the world to Cambodia's suffering. But even 40 years later, it's important to understand that this is not yet history, it's still very much news. The UN-backed tribunal set up to convict former Khmer Rouge leaders is still ongoing. It is still impossible for families to find out exactly what happened to their loved ones. And only now are Cambodian schoolchildren learning about the atrocities. But I was interested to know what life was like for Lida growing up as a Cambodian girl in a white middle-class household in rural England. And for Prue as a mother, 
Were they cushioned from the sharper edges of racism? Back then, race relations was a new phrase. Multiculturalism was in its infancy, while only 2% of children were from ethnic minorities. Today, it is 33%. Prue, it must have been quite a distinct experience being a, a mother and adopted child and, and raising a Cambodian daughter in the 1970s when obviously attitudes were very different then. I believe there was one incident in, the, in a park. This is a really horrible story, but we were sitting in a park um, and I was watching the leader playing with other little children in the sort of sandpit. And I was sitting between two women who were complete strangers. And one of them, she said, I'm sorry, I just have to say this. I know you're not going to like it, but I have to say it. I think it's quite wrong of you to have wrenched your daughter from her cultural roots and, you know, taken her away. It's just disgraceful. I was drawing breath to say, actually, her cultural roots were genocide and she could have been killed if she hadn't been taken out of she would have been killed if she hadn't been taken out of and how do you think feel about that I was just longing to get in and kill her really and um, the woman on the other side of me interrupted and she said she said honestly I think it's just wonderful what you've done she said it's so fantastic to adopt this little girl especially as she's so plain and so black and I just thought who needs enemies who needs enemies but by and large, we had very little prejudice. Um, I mean, we used to go to South Africa every summer for holidays because I'm South African. And I was really worried because at the time it was still apartheid. I thought they wouldn't let Lida in. But everybody just, she was tiny, you see. And so people loved children and everybody adored her, including the immigration officers. They would just let her through no trouble. She wasn't officially allowed on white beaches because the beaches were reserved for white people. So Lida would be running around stark naked with her stark naked little brother and people on the beach just adored her. I mean, Lida, I mean, you never felt any prejudice, did you? No, not really. I mean, um, but but I think if I had been black, darker, I think, or older, exactly, I think I would have experienced a lot more. But by and large, I think we were lucky. But when she was at prep school, I thought she was in danger of thinking that she was really incredibly special because she was... I did. <laughs> she was on the front cover of the school brochure. She was, she'd got the lead in the nativity play. You know, she was, she was always up front because she was the only non-white child in the school and the school wanted to claim some kind of diversity. So she, she was their little um, poster girl. But it's weird because... You know, I I know a lot of people have experienced racism, and this is very personal, obviously, and individual. But I found that my difference has made has helped make me feel special. Uh, I've never felt it in the opposite sort of negative way. Maybe that's just how I've dealt with it as an adoptee. It's All Relative is sponsored by Acorn Aperitifs, the delicious non-alcoholic spritz range made from botanical herbs and natural flavours. Now, I can personally vouch for just how delicious acorn drinks are. Last April, during the first lockdown, I was hot, tired and bloated because I was six months pregnant 
and at the time, a little peeved with my husband, who decided to introduce an evening cocktail ritual, which was admittedly much needed after a day on Zoom. While he embraced his inner Don Draper with his shaken martinis, I sipped somewhat resentfully on my low-grade cordial. Then I discovered bitter acorn. So I like to mix mine with tonic water and a squeeze of lemon served in a very chilled cocktail glass. And this became my third trimester evening ritual, which saw me through the first lockdown, the birth of my daughter, the second lockdown, and well afterwards, because even though now I can technically enjoy alcohol, acorn bitter is my go-to aperitif. Do you remember when you were about, um, I suppose, five or six, and you wanted to be a, a princess, like, like the fairy tale princesses in your bedtime books. You wanted to be blonde, have long blonde hair, and you wanted to have a crinoline skirt. And so I made you a, 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 a enormously elaborate, huge, beautiful crinoline skirt out of everything in the rag bag. And um, so you had the skirts. And then I went in search of, the, of, a, of a wig for your Christmas present, and we got you a... A blonde, ghastly, cheap wig that I bought for five pounds second hand from somebody. I asked Father Christmas up the chimney. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, you you got it. You got it. And um, but you wore it day in and day out over for, for ages. And I, I cannot tell you how awful you looked, but you adored it. You absolutely adored it. it was probably the, probably the best present I ever gave you. So there must have been a moment when you wanted to be a white princess. <laughs> oh, absolutely. My best friends, I think, for a long time were blonde. Well, yes, exactly. All your friends were blonde. And, your, and also, at the time, there were no stories about black children or dark children, were there? Yeah. I mean, none, the only story which, um, about a black child that I had, and we didn't want, and it was considered really not the thing to do, to um, to read it to children was was um, Little Black Sambo, you know, which is a you know band now. The Little Black Sambo to which Prue was referring was in fact a children's book set in India and written way back in 1899 by a woman called Helen Bannerman. It was seen at the time as providing one of the first black heroes in children's literature, but by the mid 20th century. American civil rights activists were calling out the book for projecting racial stereotypes, particularly the portrayal of Piccaninnies in its imagery. But let's not pat ourselves on the back for progresses made since then. Positive and inclusive representation within children's literature is still way behind where it should be. Just 10% of children's books published in 2019 in the UK featured characters from a minority ethnic background. As someone who had grown up in apartheid South Africa, who had obviously had a distinctly racialized experience, albeit a shielded one, I wanted to hear from her about growing up in apartheid and what that looked like for an affluent white woman from the suburbs. Prue, you obviously grew up in South Africa under the, the shadow of apartheid. Could you talk a little bit how your political consciousness on that front was awakened in your 20s? It was so thorough apartheid that you never really knew how badly um, black people were treated. I mean, I never went into Kailicha or um, Sophia Town or any of the black enclaves um, because it was, that wasn't allowed. I mean, life was genuinely separate. Our nanny, who was black, um, 
had to sit at the back of the bus. And we would sit in the front of the bus. I had only met white people who went to university or had had a decent education. And suddenly there I was in, in Paris with Moroccans and Niger Nigerians and people from um, America who were of um, African origin, all brighter than me and more educated and more sophisticated and very French. <laughs> And I love your autobiography and the way it describes a rather carefree youth swinging from South Africa, Paris and London. Well, it was the 60s. So obviously um, there was quite a lot of dancing and, and carrying on. But I, didn't, I think that because I had been brought up um, rather strictly myself, I mean, really rather like leader. I mean, neither of us have, as, as young people, went totally off the rails. I mean, I, I, I certainly had a few joints in my life but I never got into drugs there was something very lovely about the 60s in London because it was you sort of knew that you were the first generation to not dress like your mother and to, remember my mother being deeply shocked that I had a mini skirt that was really as she described it a pubic helmet oh I love the term pubic helmet now, miniskirts may have broken the aesthetic boundaries for women. And of course, the baby boomers did usher in a new era of female liberation. But let's not confuse the myth of the 60s with the reality. Marriage and kids were still the female fate and their key route to social mobility. 77% of boomer women were married by the age of 25. 91% were wed by the age of 30. But since then, it has risen steadily for both genders. The average age for first-time marriage is now 31 for women and 33 for men. You could say that millennial women have swapped the marriage market for educational attainment. But this didn't happen overnight by one generation. It has been a story that has been decades in the making. I was interested to hear from Lida about her experimental years before marriage and kids as a Gen X woman. Lida, growing up a young woman in the 1990s, were, were you a Spice Girl? Were you a ladder? As soon as I uh, left school, I was having a sort of identity crisis in terms of um, uh, everything, really. And I wanted to get away as, as far away from home as possible, so I had an amazing gap year. But then I um, ended up going to Glasgow, which is pretty far from home. The dance scene was just happening, and I got heavily into that. I just thought, I love dancing. I want to dance all night. <laughs> <laughs> and did. <laughs> and did, exactly. And I started DJing. I had a boyfriend that was a DJ, and he taught me how to DJ, and I just had such a lovely time. Um, and attended university and you know I was one of the lucky I think I was the last lucky intake that my education was free um, which I feel a bit bad about now I should have attended better but I still got my degree <laughs> so you so you were a raver then and a 90s raver a bit of one yes Prue would you describe yourself as a feminist you were obviously um, pioneering female in very much a male dominated world Yes, I definitely would. When I was um, starting out, I was very aware that I couldn't get into maxims as a young woman to work because they wouldn't let women in the kitchen. And when I started my business in um, England, I couldn't get any of our, when I opened Leith School of Food and Wine, a lot of our students were, in fact, most of our students were women. I often tell the story of 
going to the Savoy <coughs> and asking the then head chef called Trompetto um, if he would have uh, one of our students. And he said, over my dead body, I will never have a woman in the kitchen. I thought he'd say, oh, well, you know, women distract the boys in the kitchen or they're, they're not strong enough or they keep... And But what he said was, no, 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 I will not have them in the kitchen because at a certain time of the month, they curdled the mayonnaise. I mean, unbelievable. And that was in the 60s. There was, there was huge amount of prejudice, but I never felt it personally because I had my own business. I never worked for anybody. Women would tell me all the time about prejudice. You know, they'd, they'd be bullied in, in the kitchens, they'd be shut in the cold room, they'd be often... Um, you know, abused by head chefs or um, men in power. I mean, I'm I'm a generation that uh, the Germaine Greer gem generation. Germaine um, wrote the Female Unit, and it was the most wonderful book because it just expressed a sort of rebel um, feminism. She she was just revolutionary. So yes, I, I think we would say we were feminist now, but at the time to say you were feminist meant that you were going to be actively burning your bra in the high street. And I never got that far. You know, I wanted my bra, I looked better with a bra on. I was much too selfish to, you know, and, and the, the, the sort of very strong feminism, they got sort of man-hating, which I always thought was a great mistake. The female eunuch has never been out of print since it was published, and yet Jermaine Greer is now in danger of being cancelled by today's feminists. Now, feminism is one area, of course, where there is a definite generation gap. Another is food. Recipes may still be passed down from one generation to another, but there has also emerged a real food divide across the ages, not only over what we consume, but also how and why. We used to say grace before we ate our food. Now we take a picture. Baby boomers were weaned on rationing, millennials on Happy Meals, while Gen Z are going meat-free. Now, veganism, of course, wasn't invented by Gen Z, but with one in five labeling themselves as such, plant-based diets are becoming a real generational marker. I wanted to ask Prue what she thought of this growing trend. Well, like most movements, um, some people go too far. I mean, it's very small, but there is a, a, a percentage of vegans who actually are, are so militant, they, they practically want to kill people who kill animals, um, which is a bit odd. I mean, I'm, I'm just too fond of meat to be even vegetarian. But what I do believe, and I think that the vegans and the veggies have really helped us in this, is that I think cruelty to animals is appalling and so I'm I, I will only eat you know um, grass-fed um, beef and buy and I buy you know decent free-range chickens and organic eggs and so on and so on because I just don't like the way our obsession with eating meat treats animals but that's not the argument people most people use it's usually a health one and a health one is a difficult one to sustain because if you are vegan or vegetarian you really have to make an effort to make sure that you get all the right protein in your body so i think it's a good thing as a whole i just think that some vegans go too far
Okay, now is the time just to our last section. It's called the quick fire round where we cover firsts that have shaped your youth. Could you tell me who was your first kiss leader? I won't say who, but I did share my blonde friend's boyfriend behind the bike sheds at school. Oh, share. Mm, okay. <laughs> For a first kiss. <laughs> Prue? My first kiss was with a young man who my parents so disapproved of. I just had to have him as a boyfriend just because my parents didn't approve. And Lida, what was your first job and can you remember what you got paid? I was a commie chef at the local restaurant called Annie's in Mortner Marsh and um, I think I was just paid the, the a very low wage, the minimum wage, that's the word I'm for. Following in the family tradition. And Prue, what was your first job? Yes, my first job, I was a judge's clerk in South Africa for a high court judge. It was like being a sort of secretary, really, but I sat in court with him, had to wear a funny uniform, and I got £500 a year, which was 10 quid a week or something. Gosh, that was pretty good. And what was your first music purchase, and in which format, Lida? It was, um, it was actually vinyl, and it was Wham's Greatest Hits, I believe. Um, but it, it was actually given to me by my mum, but it started a vinyl, vinyl uh, craze to me. Obsession. And Prue, what was your first music purchase? Mine was Johnny Mathis singing soppy songs, and I used to listen to it at bed, in bed at night on my own, and it was a long playing vinyl. Oh, fabulous. Okay, and final question to you both. You are two ladies who have very much lived your lives in the 20th century. If you had one piece of advice for the future generation as they try and navigate the 21st century, what would it be? It's so hard navigating life anyway, no matter what century. So um, I think uh, stay honest and true to yourself and try and be happy. That's three things, but... Good advice there. Prue, what's the advice you're willing to bestow on your grandchildren? I think that the future generation is going to have to be really flexible, tolerant and flexible, flexible about the job they get, flexible about changing jobs, change, reskilling all the time. It's going to be a much more changeable career and life than I had. Fantastic. Thank you for both your willingness to come on It's All Relative and I really appreciate you sharing your stories, your insights and your family anecdotes um, just to really contrast the two different generations. Thank you very much both. Thank you to Prue and Lida and of course don't forget to tune into The Great British Bake Off, one of the last TV shows I think that is genuinely watched by all generations. Please do subscribe to the podcast. And if you would like to follow me on socials, you can find me on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram at Eliza Philby. And if you're super keen and want to read more of my research and writing on generations, you can subscribe to my newsletter at www.elizaphilby.com. When you sign up, you will also be entered into a prize draw with the chance of winning some impressive acorn goodies. Thanks for listening. I look forward to you all tuning in to the next episode of It's All Relative.